This podcast is intended as entertainment for grown-ups and to spread awareness of 826LA, a nonprofit writing and tutoring center for children ages 6 to 18. Visit 826LA.org for a full schedule of 826LA's events and programs, including the Time Travel Mart, with locations in Echo Park and Mar Vista, California. And now, the host of the Dead Authors Podcast, Mr. H.G. Wells. Hello all and welcome to Chapter 40 of the Dead Authors Podcast. I am your host, H.G. Wells, and I give you my thanks for downloading this latest installment of our program. Do you see what I did there? I verbally doffed my metaphorical chapeau to your American holiday of Thanksgiving. After all, it's just round the corner, as the abundance of Christmas merchandise spilling over onto the last of the discounted Halloween merchandise at your local apothecary will attest. As a noted secularist, I've always loved Thanksgiving, or Harvest Festival, as we call it cross the pond. It's a yearly chance to eat yourself silly and roll your eyes at your relatives without all the bother of dragging a mythical deity into the proceedings. What could be better? This year, I made it my business as a time traveler and de facto historian to do a bit of digging into the American Thanksgiving tradition. I know what you're thinking. Why not set the time machine for Plymouth Rock circa 1621? Why not indeed, you plonkers? Perhaps you've heard of a little thing called smallpox. I shouldn't like to carry back a case with me across the ages, not with the way you lot have been quarantining all manner of long-distance travellers lately. I've not the faintest desire to conduct interviews with my departed literary peers, and inferiors, let's be honest, from within the confines of a bloody pest tent, thank you very much. No. Instead, I travel to Washington, D.C. in October of 1863, mere days before President Abraham Lincoln was to proclaim the final Thursday of November a national day of thanksgiving. With the Civil War raging, the old rail splitter was doing his usual hemming and hawing over whether anyone would even notice a new holiday in such a time of war. Posing as a constituent and deploying my very best Virginia patois, I bent the great man's ear and made my case. Stuff the nation's fattened men so full of turkey that buttons both blue and gray fly off their uniforms and across the sky like so many musket balls. Both sides will be too badly sluggish to fight, and the war between the states will at last draw to a close. (laughs) And do you know what? A year and a half later, that's more or less exactly what happened. So, when you're giving thanks this year, America, don't forget a heaping helping for your old friend Wells. Right alongside the yams, if you please. Speaking of Virginia, and I absolutely was, you can go back and check, my guest for this installment of the podcast is none other than Mrs. Dalloway author Virginia Woolf. She's a... well, she's a bit... uh, Oh, how does one put this diplomatically? Uh, Mad as a bag of ferrets? That's a tad inelegant, I confess, but fitting nonetheless, as you'll soon hear in Chapter 40 of the Dead Authors Podcast. Have a seat there, Mrs. Wolf, if you you would. I'll I'll remove the microphone from your chair. You have your own own microphone. Pleasure, Pleasure to see you. There you are. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. Oh, you should, you should tell your face, perhaps. <laughs> that's, an, that's an old one from the clubs. Just, just, just a little joke. I, I, I wonder if you might, uh, uh, as you're here, if you might favour us with a reading from one of you, 
for a few words. Yes, of course. <clears throat> it rasped her, though, to have stirring about in her this brutal monster, to hear twigs cracking and feel hooves planted down in the depths of that leaf-encumbered forest, the soul. Never to be content quite or quite secure, for at any moment, the brute would be stirring. This hatred, which especially since her illness had power to make her feel scraped, hurt in her spine, gave her physical pain and made all pleasure and beauty and friendship in being well, in being loved and making her home delightful rock quiver and bend as if indeed there were a monster grabbing at the roots, as if the whole panoply of content were nothing but self-love. This hatred, nonsense, nonsense, she cried to herself, pushing through the swing doors of Mulberry's The Florists. Thank you so Virginia much. Virginia Woolf, ladies and gentlemen. That is a, an excerpt from my book, Mrs. Dalloway. Uh, it's about a, a lady who's planning a party. Yes, yeah, she's planning a party. Some other things happen as well. Yes. Yeah, yes. It's not just not just uh, no, it's making not lists just of the things. Party. No. No, but a lot goes into planning a party. I found when I was researching this book. Oh, you did some some party some party planning research. Yes. What what did you find? Well, I discovered that you have to apparently you have to have flowers. What what party would be complete without flowers? I agree. <laughs> you have to figure out something with food. Certainly. You do have to figure out something with food. And beverage. Oh, yes. I, they sort of go together, don't they? If you have the one, you crave the other. Yes. Anyway, I've never thrown a party myself, so I wouldn't know much about it. You're not, you're not missing anything, really. It's, it's, they tend to be boring. And do you go to parties? I, I've been to a few, yes. I've been to a few parties. What do you talk about? Um, there's a lot of talk of balloons. <laughs> if they're there, you know, it's, it's a good conversation starter. Like, I say, look at those balloons. Those look like top That's shelf. all your conversations are about, are balloons. Well, it, it, depends. it depends to whom one is speaking. Who do you speak to normally? Uh, frightfully dull people. Oh, I know exactly the type. <laughs> My life is populated with frightfully dull people. I, 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 I say, Mrs. Wolf, are you all right? You made, I'm all right. You made a sort of, uh, made a sort of uh, ghastly grimace there. Uh, I go into my spot in my brain when I think of all the boredom and all the, the mundaneness <laughs> of life. I go to a spot in my brain where, where I just allow myself to swim in the muck of humanity in all the slime and the dirt and the awfulness. Ooh, ooh, don't, 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 don't go to that uh, spot. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel as if you're, if, you, if you're retreating from people who are boring. That's not a great place to go, is it? No, it's bad. At least there, there's truth, there's honesty. No one will talk about what's really going on. What, what's really going on? People are sad. <laughs> 
Well, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. But let's let's uh, let's let's start out happier, okay. and then um, plenty of time for sadness later. But, okay. Uh, but uh, uh, you're a fascinating person. And you... <laughs> you're a fascinating person. You've had a fascinating life. Thank you. Are yes. you are you smiling? Yes. Okay. I wasn't. <laughs> I had a suspicion. I don't, usually, usually it goes up at the corners, up oh, at the corners. I don't know. I've, a smile has never come naturally to me. <laughs> I, 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 I believe you. And um, uh, it's, the, the effect is rather like a, an embarrassed shark. I've spent hours in front of a mirror practicing. Oh. Leonard tells me I must get it right, but I just can't. You don't, you don't need to smile. You can smile anywhere you wish here tonight. Okay. It's a safe place and... and uh, uh, you don't even have to make the uh, apparently enormous effort that it takes for you to uh, uh, to get to that point. Um, this pleases me to hear. I shall frown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it takes uh, uh, more muscles to frown, but it 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 does uh, it, it takes less of your soul to do so. Okay. <laughs> Well, no, not all, not all of these will be worthy of stitching on a pillow. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you were born Adeline Virginia Stephen uh, yes. in London. Uh, your parents, uh, Sir Leslie and Julia. Mm -hmm. uh, your father was a notable historian, uh, critic, and a mountaineer. Yes. It sounds like an exciting chap. Yes, he was a very adventurous man. Yes, he was uh, well educated, and of course, he sent my brothers and my half-siblings to go and study at university. However, me and my sisters, the females of the family, were not permitted to study in college or university. We were self-taught. Yeah, uh, you took courses uh, later, yes. uh, the, the two of you. But uh, you, you, did you resent not being sent to university? Oh, yes, very much, very much. I held a, a, a monster in my heart, just a just a mean little monster who said, get me go to college. Get me go to college. But my father would never let me. You see, it wasn't right at that time for a woman to go to college. But but times were changing, weren't they? Yes, and, yes, yes. You know, you're, you're regarded as, as, a, as an important feminist to many people. Oh, oh. Goodness, am I? Yes, now, nowadays there are a great many people who regard you as, uh, as quite a, a strong feminist, as oh. someone who believed in uh, women's equal rights. Well, that's, that's very true, and I'm, I'm honored that people consider me a feminist. At the time, though, I was just considered a loony. <laughs> well, not, not just for that, though. <laughs> No, yes. Solely for the purpose of me believing that women should have an equal opportunity in education and employment. Um, people thought I was a loony because of that, and that alone. Uh, your mother was a renowned beauty. She was, yes. a, she was a model for, uh, for the, the yes. pre-Raphaelite painters. She was, she was very beautiful. And I remember the painters would sometimes come over to our home and, and paint her. She was naked. Did, did you actually see her posing? Yes, yes, I would. I would see her pose. Well, what did you make of that as a, as a, as a small child? Well, I saw breasts. Certainly. <laughs> and I, of course, I, it, it's hard to be a female in a household. And 
and not compare yourself to the other females there, you know. Our society bred such a, an air of competition amongst females, you know, who would get the husband? Who would, who would get the husband? Just those two. Just those two, really, those are our only options. Um, but I remember, even as a child, when I would observe my mother modeling, how beautiful and effortless she was. And so at ease in her body, I never felt that. I always felt like a crab in my body. <laughs> Just like a little crab, I can never get comfortable. To this day, I can't get comfortable. I'm absolutely crawling out of my skin. What, just sitting there in that chair? Yes, I hate it. You, just, you feel the tremendous urge to walk sideways yes. away? Yes, and, and pince, pince, pince. <laughs> I just, I want to, anyway, I, that, that, was my, that was my mother. She was a great beauty and, and someone who was very in touch with her femininity. And, and that is something I struggled with throughout my life is that being in touch with my body and my sexuality in that way. What, did you ever... What, what, so certainly you, you tried to be in touch with your femininity yes. and your sexuality? Yes, uh, absolutely. I experimented sexually with many different partners. Men, women. Yeah, no, it's all, it's all right. You can say it at full volume nowadays. I had sex with women. Thank you. Thank you. And it was uh, very nice. <laughs> do, you, do you have a preference, men or women? Oh no, I love I love them both. To me, sexuality exists on a spectrum, and of course, I believe we all feel a, a little bit of some sort of sexual ambivalence. Don't you agree? Certainly. Good. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I was very, uh, uh, very open-minded in my day. You know, we, we were contemporaries. Yes. And, yes, uh, yes. and I certainly believed in, uh, in a lot of things that, uh, uh, that certain other people didn't. You know, free love. There were a lot of mm. people that uh, didn't believe in that. My wife. Um, <laughs> but uh, I thought it was a cracking idea. Yes. Still do. Still do. Yes. So there's a, there's a bowl by the door if you want to put your keys into it. Oh, is this... Are you speaking of a key party? Yes, that's exactly right. You know, oh, I wish I had learned of that wonderful tradition before I wrote Mrs. Dalloway. I would have certainly had her throw a key party. Do you know what the problem was, though? And, and this is uh, one writer to another. That I think back then the, uh, the keys were too big. <laughs> there were those great big skeleton jobbies. And, uh, you oh, have, yes, you'd have but to have an enormous bowl. Surely that makes the party that much more exciting. You, uh, whose skeleton key is this? No, it's the key to the church. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it adds a bit of fun to the festivities. That does sound rather spicy. Uh, Mrs. Dalloway's key party. <laughs> oh, a sequel. Yes, I will write it. <laughs> um... You, uh, you loved your, uh, the, the summer home that the house that oh, the family yes. went to every year. And it's, uh, it's a, a Talland house in uh, uh, St. Ives, Cornwall. And it's mm -hmm. still standing today, you'll be pleased to know. It's, it's slightly altered. Yes. Is, is there anything about the house that you hope they haven't changed? I, I certainly have no idea uh, what's been done to it. Mm. But is there anything that if, if you could tell them, please don't? Oh, please don't touch the kitchen. 
It was laid out in such a marvelous way, really. It, it, you, it, all of us congregated there, you know, when we would have meals and when the cooks would be cooking, my mother, my sisters and I would go gather around the kitchen and it was, it was a wonderful social occasion. One of the few times I felt social in my life was in that kitchen. I would also ask that they not alter my bedroom at all because the most important thing to a writer is that she has a room of her own. Yes, and this is uh, this is actually uh, uh, something that you've written. It was a, it was a yes. uh, was it a short story? Was it a novel? Room room of one's own. It was more of a <laughs> seminar. I, I would think say. it's an essay. If I if I okay, guess. I think yes. <laughs> okay, I'd say it's probably a book length essay that is that. Well, I wasn't allowed to go to college, so <laughs> I don't certainly know. you wouldn't know terms like essay. Essay. Well, now I know. Yes, I did write an essay about that. And the idea of a room of one's own is that yes. uh, uh, someone who's, who's, a, who's a writer, who's a creative person, uh, and, and specifically a woman, needs uh, a space of their own yes. um, uh, where they can just be who they are uh, without the, uh, the, the pressures and the, the, uh, the bothers of, uh, of the outside world. That's right, without the social niceties and people, people stopping by all the time and saying, hello, would you like a cup of tea? No. I will come get you when I want a cup of tea. <laughs> Leave me alone. Hello there, would you like to come to a party? No! When have I ever accepted an invitation to come to a party? Hello there, can we come in? No! Stay away! This is where I write. This is where the words flow from me. Oh, it was so important. I had the bed just so, just against the wall. And then there was a table, I remember. A window, of course, that looked out upon the park. And in the distance, you could see the lighthouse, the lighthouse that figured very um, importantly in another one of my novels. <laughs> yes. But yes, it, it's so important to have your own space. Um, you did, you do have your, uh, your issues with, uh, with, uh, I hate to say this I, I, directly to you, but with mental health. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's, I, I feel it's something we should talk about. It, it's, it's, a, it's a common uh, thing with writers. And you, you, all right. Let's talk, oh, fine, let's talk about mental illness. <laughs> Certainly. Fine, let's talk about it. Well, you, you suffered a few, uh, a few breakdowns. <laughs> oh, fuck you. Well, uh, <laughs> they what? They weren't breakdowns. They were losses of focus and stability and any sense of reality. Is so, that meant to make it sound better? Yes. It's, it, <laughs> yes. I, I hate that term breakdown. It, 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 it alludes to the fact that we are not already broken. We as humans are inherently broken inside. So I didn't have a breakdown. I had a, oh, this, this is good. This is what happens. A status quo. A status quo, <laughs> yes. I didn't go to college. <laughs> yes, I had a status quo, fine. You suffered a number of these status quos. <laughs> um, there were three short periods you spent um, at a place called Burley House. 
which was called a, a private nursing home for women with nervous disorder. It was called hell. It was called hell between me and the other women. Nervous disorders. Bunch of assholes. So do you feel, you feel as if the, the other women at Burley House suffering their own status quos. They were, they were a bunch of assholes. No, the other women were, were, were women like myself. Women who, people, humans, who were in touch with what was inherently broken inside of them. The, the nurses and the doctors and the experts, so-called, they were the assholes. The things they would do to us to cure our nervousness, it was ghastly. What would they do? Well, they, they, they'd poke us with a stick. <laughs> they'd Just a stick from outside? Yes! <laughs> They'd grab a stick. It's not funny, I'm H.G. I'm not laughing. I'm not, I'm not laughing. And, and the listener will not have heard me laugh. So there's the proof. They would take a stick from outside. Mm -hmm. For example, this was a treatment I would get daily. I would be in my room and I would be excited. A room of your own. A room of my own. Exactly. And that's why I would be so excited. But then when it was... You've, you've gone away, Mrs. Wolf, you've gone away. Oh, 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 oh welcome back. The darkness. <laughs> then... <laughs> when it was time for my treatment, I, there was a knock at my door, and I would say, I don't want tea. A lot of people trying to offer you tea. <laughs> I know. That's what I'm saying. Wait, was this after the stick? No, this was before. What, so was they the tea a ruse to get you to open the door? Yes! I would open the door to say, I don't want tea. And in would come the doctor with brandishing a twig <laughs> from outside. And he'd, he'd say, sit down, you know what this is about. And I would say, oh, no, please. And he would say, it's time for your treatment. Vivi, he called me Vivi. Oh. And he would take the stick, just so, and he would poke me. In the face? He would poke me right on my forehead, between my two eyes. <laughs> he would just sit there poking me. Would he say anything while he was doing this? Yes. He would say, tee hee hee hee. That's, that's I know. terrible. I don't know, exactly. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's I don't ghastly. see how that's meant to help. Well, they, that's what, yes. Those people were, were sadists and, and, and monsters and, and any time that I spent there, that was, it was no time for rest and rejuvenation. It was a time to, to uh, steal myself up inside and, and, and get, get ready to get poked. With a stick from With outside. With a stick from outside. Ghastly. Well, on to happier things. Um... <laughs> after the death of your father and your second nervous breakdown. Ah! You came to know uh, a group of people, uh, including your future husband, yes. uh, that would be called the Bloomsbury Group. The Bloomsbury Group. It's a group of writers and artists. Yes. Uh, very exciting people. My uh, saving grace. Fun intellectuals. Uh, you participated in something called the Dreadnought Hoax oh! with all of these people. <laughs> Are you are you laughing? Yes. 
it did it did look for a moment as if some supernatural entity had taken you over. No, that's how I laugh. Oh. I'm, uh, I'm laughing doesn't sorry. come very naturally to me. Apparently not. Yes, um, but yes. This, it was a funny hoax. The, the dreadnought hoax was um, this fellow, uh, uh, Horace Devere Cole, he was a, an eccentric uh, prankster. Um, he uh, got you and your brother and a group of other people together yes. and uh, somehow tricked the, the, the Royal Navy into uh, showing you uh, a ship called the HMS Dreadnought um, because you had deluded him into, belie into believing that you were members of the Abyssinian royal family. I wore a beard. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. You, you, you dressed a drag as a man and, yes. and you all wore a, a sort of makeup to make you look more Abyssinian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel terrible about you, that Do you now. wish that part well, hadn't yes. happened? Yes, after learning of the history of this country especially, you know, I'm not American. But learning the history of this country, I, I look back on what we thought was such a funny hoax, and I'm ashamed. But it was really fun. It was pretty funny. And I've since learned that they've, they've discovered a new dinosaur that they've named after this, this type of ship, the Dreadnoughtus. I think that's what the name of the dinosaur. Anyone heard about this dinosaur? Dreadnoughtus, yes. Dreadnoughtus? Yes. Does it look like a boat? Is that why it's called this? No, it's very, very big. <sighs> it's just very, very big. <laughs> Bigger than the T-Rex or the one in the third Jurassic Park film? <laughs> yes. So it's yeah. pretty big. Was it, was it big. an aquatic uh, uh, dinosaur? Land-based. It was on what? It was on Science Friday. Science Friday. <laughs> I say, uh, madam, do you think uh, Ms. Mrs. Wolf would like Science Friday? It's not really happy. Perfect. It's just sad, sad science. In sad other sad science news. Sad science is the best science. What's the saddest scientific thing you can think of? Mm. Mm. The saddest scientific thing I could think of is that I was born with a vagina. Asked and answered. So you mar in, in 1907, uh, your sister married uh, uh, Clive Bell, um, and uh, this had a profound. But he was uh, they were they were a very uh, uh, avant-garde uh, art couple, and, and and this had a profound influence on uh, yes. on your development as an author. Um, yes. um, what was it about the avant-garde art movement? Like, like what, what were the sort of avant-garde things that you enjoyed back then? Well, I think what interested me the most about the avant-garde movement was that it was, it was sort of a, a, uh, a throwing away of realism in, in such that it was literally interpreted. I write, as you know, in stream-of-consciousness style. Yes. And to me, the honesty, the, the flow of thought, the, the openness to the, the weaving in and out of, of uh, awarenesses and thoughts and, and feelings and how they, they are constantly interwoven inside our brains and in that, that voice that's ongoing, and, and for me, multiple voices that are ongoing in our minds. <laughs> um, 
And uh, that's what interested me the most, was that freedom of interpretation of these these fluid thoughts and feelings. I feel like before in art, there was no such recognition of this fallibility or imperfection or, or absurdism. Did you ever see that crucifix in the jar of piss? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's profound. It's very, very, very profound. profound. Yes, certainly. It Especially. Is. I, very divisive uh, piece of art. Well, and I stand on the, div on the side of the division of that's wonderful. <laughs> because religion is a, is a sham. Religion is an absolute sham. No argument here. Well, good. <laughs> what is there anything uh, that you anything else you'd like to see uh, uh, placed in a jar of piss? <laughs> For art's mm. sake. A red poppy. Well, it's very political. It is. So well, so close to Remembrance Day, of course. A what? You know, Remembrance Day when uh, uh, people wear their uh, their poppies to uh, uh, to remember the uh, uh, the men killed in in war. Oh God! Oh, I'm a frightful cad. Oh God! I lived through both world wars. I'm a oh, I'm an asshole. I think you just. How can I not know that? Well, just a momentary lapse of. of of judgment, I'm sure. And well, it, it was a commentary. It was a commentary on, on, the, on the two wars and the, the hatefulness of them and the... And the uh, oh, no. Uh. no. No, I think that was very avant-garde just now. It was? Yes, it was. Yes. You're in... <laughs> uh, in 1912, you married your husband, uh, mm. Leonard Wolfe. Um, he was not a rich man. No. Uh, but you loved him dearly. Yes. Um, you referred to him during your engagement as a penniless Jew. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a oh. very, you, you were very close. You were a very close couple, thick as yes. thieves. Thick as thieves. And uh, in uh, 1937, after after many years of marriage, uh, you wrote in your diary, and I hope I won't embarrass you if I if I share this with uh, with everyone. I mean, it is from your diary. Are you right with my with my reading Please. to people? Yeah. Anything I write is for public consumption. <laughs> You wrote, lovemaking, after 25 years, can't bear to be separate. You see, it is enormous pleasure being wanted a wife, and our marriage so complete. <laughs> there's, there's that famous Virginia Woolf smile. We did have a wonderful marriage. And, and a passionate one, apparently. Yes, uh, very passionate. Well, what, yes. I mean, what's the secret to keeping the passion alive? Because, uh, you know, I'm sure there's people, I don't know if there's anyone here that's old enough to be married, but uh, um, uh, someday, perhaps. I believe in you. Um, what's, what's the secret to keeping the uh, passion alive? Because I can tell you what, having an open marriage is apparently not it. Is that what you did? Well... <laughs> Um, we, Leonard and I certainly had an agreement. Um, I told him that I didn't want to know about any sexual encounters he had, uh, but that I would demand that I am allowed to have at least some dalliances with my sexuality with 
specifically with another woman. Yes, well, the, the Bloomsbury Group were very uh, libertine uh, yes. uh, gang. And, progressive uh, views. Yeah, very progressive and, and uh, encouraged uh, 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 a liberal approach to sexuality. And, uh, uh, and so you met, um, in 1922, uh, uh, the writer and gardener, it's important to mention, Vita Sackville West, who was a married woman. <laughs> she was beautiful. She was, let me tell you something, she walked into a room and the air got sucked out of it. She was stunning in every way a person can be stunning. She was a terrific gardener. <laughs> Did you have a specialty as a gardener? Well, she liked roses. Oh, someone over here said hedges. Oh, she liked roses. <laughs> and Rose hedges, I suppose, roses. as well. She would bring me roses. Why? I'm curious. Why did you say hedges? <laughs> is that some Vita Sackville West trivia that you know? Or is there it, is it some sort of... She created rooms That's with right. hedges, like a sort of hedge maze out of The Shining. Yes, oh. Oh. that was a terrifying movie. It's very scary, isn't but it? But so truthful. Yes, all work and no play does make Jack a dog work. <laughs> it's as true today as it was then. Did you see the... Did, did you see the miniseries of The Shining that Stephen King did? No, I did not see that. Don't bother. Is it not good? No, it's terrible. Oh, why is it so bad? Well, I think the point of, and I say this as as a, as a writer, I think uh, I think that the idea of adapting a uh, a book to the screen is um, you got to shrink it down <laughs> into uh, less than seven nights. You're not supposed to just put every comma and semicolon on the screen. He put the comma and He just semicolon. filmed the entire book. Oh, my word. That's, that's, now, that sounds like a man who's suffering a status quo. Yes. He was almost a guest on our show, you know. Is that very right? close. Oh, he I would love to. He came very close to booking him. Oh, I would love to have yes. met him. Fell through. No way. Schedules. <laughs> Schedules. Schedules. Sh and scheduling. Shed schedules and scheduling. The bane of a producer's existence. Oh. oh, the banality of this topic oh. of conversation. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to get you off. Please, stay with us, stay with us, if you will, Mrs. Wolf. So you just consider, consider the microphone as I ratchet up to my next question. Um, so you had a, you had a, 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 a wonderful fling with Vita Sackville West, um, and, and, and just oof. darkness be gone. We will dance the dance of death later. You, you in darkness? Yes. Yeah. Um, as a sort of as a sort of gift to uh, 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 to Mr. Sackville West, uh, you wrote Orlando. Um, which is a, a wonderful story about this, uh, this uh, uh, fellow, young nobleman, who sort of uh, uh, walks through time. He's, he's this sort of ageless mm. fellow, at one point becomes a woman. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, uh, whimsical, and uh, very lyrical uh, uh, work, uh, which I imagine uh, uh, Vita enjoyed. 
She actually wasn't that thrilled with it. Really? Because essentially the character of Orlando is, is, uh, is you know, is her in, in various guises. Well, and yes, and I, I tried to, and, and within that text, I, I, I tried to, you know, flirting doesn't come naturally to me. Really? <laughs> really. Would you like, would you like to try, try a bit of a flirt and let me see if I can okay. see what you're talking about? Let's, pre let's pretend I'm a stunning woman who sucked all the air out of the room. Very well. <laughs> Do you want a tea? No. So you 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 sort of you sort of go to move is to offer is to offer tea. That's all I know. That's because all I've ever been confronted with my whole life. Do you want tea? Oh, bother. Let me try it again, please. <laughs> Certainly, absolutely, absolutely. The door opens, in walks this stunning woman. Hello, everyone. Hey. <laughs> Do you like death? <laughs> Do you know, I actually think that's an approach that would be more effective today. I think I think you do quite well. Oh, among you're speaking of the goth, the goth students. Is that what you well, mean? Well, so the, the goths, the, I think, would, goths? would greatly. It might, it might be a sort of a, a tired pickup line with the goths, but I think uh, regular drunk people uh, at a at a bar or a pub. Do you want a raven? <laughs> Do you? I'm giving examples of other pickup no, lines. No, this is very intriguing. Do you want a raven? Do you want a raven? Life is meaningless. <laughs> May I buy you a drink? I'm <laughs> You've got it. You, you didn't even need to neg anyone. <laughs> Forgive me, I, I looked away for a moment and looked back and you were smiling. And I, was, I had a bit of a spell. Um, but you and you and Vita did remain. Uh, you remained lifelong friends. Um, yes. Uh, w was there any uh, period where after after your your friends and the affair is over, did you ever think about maybe sort of rekindling the old fires? Eh? With Vita. Yes. Every day. <laughs> you never got over it. No. She was one of the loves of my life. I believe there are multiple soulmates that one may have in a lifetime, and Vita was one of them. Leonard, of course, was another. Anyone else? Uh. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Just those two. Just right. those two. Um, you began writing professionally in 1900, um, initially for the uh, Times Literary Supplement. Uh, your first novel was called The Voyage Out, published in 1915. Originally titled, and this is an odd title, mm -hmm. Melambrosia. But you repeatedly changed the draft. You kept fiddling with it, tweaking oh, it. Oh, I was never happy with it. I made up that word melambrosia. No! Yes, I made it up. I've been using it ever since. Oh, I, you have? I've been using it all over the place. Oh, no. Well, this seems like a bit of what melambrosia. It, what does it mean to I you? I don't know. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I made I it thought up. It, I thought it was a, another way of saying uh, this is a big thing. Well, yes, let's have it mean that. Like, like a, a, a 
Schmageggy. Does that mean spaghetti? <laughs> Let's say it does. Schmageggy. Schmageggy. I think it's What's a schmig? What's schmageggy mean? Who knows? Someone knows. Someone must know. It's like a Megillah. A whole Megillah. Oh, yes, Megilla. that's what I thought of Melambrosia did you? Did you go to college? You did go to college. <laughs> but she never lived in a dorm. She lived at home. Does that make it any better for you? Does yes. that ease the jealousy? It does. Um, well, there's someone, uh, a fellow named uh, uh, Louise de Salvo, fellow, <laughs> I thought it's a, a woman named Louise de Salvo uh, constructed your earliest drafts mm -hmm. of uh, The Voyage Out mm -hmm. and retitled it Melambrosia mm -hmm. and put it out. Now, does that, does that give you any pause that there's years after uh, you've written something, there's someone you'd ne you never meet, generations after you, that's tinkering well, around with your works? Yes, Are you okay it, with it? Was, no, it was initially, it upset me quite a bit, but... When you become a writer and then you die. Full stop? Full stop. All right. <laughs> um, so you wrote, uh, your works were very successful and uh, yeah. they've been translated into over 50 languages. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's, uh, I hope that's very exciting oh, to you. hear. Yes, uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, some of uh, these translations by writers such as Jorge Luis Borges, who's uh, been a guest on this program. Oh, is he nice? He's, he's a very nice-ish fellow. What, uh, what language did he translate my work into? I would imagine into uh, uh, Spanish. Oh. Was <laughs> that disappointing to you? What were you hoping for? Well, I've, uh, something a bit more exotic, obviously. Spain is very exotic. But Portuguese? Would that do it for Portuguese you? Portuguese would do it for me, yes. <laughs> you see, I, I always sought out adventure. My father, being a mountaineer, was constantly going on adventures, and my brothers and stepbrothers along with him, but I never got to see the outside world. In fact, the outside world became too overwhelming for me after a while. I say, when your father went on these mountaineering adventures, would he ever bring you back any uh, trinkets or souvenirs? Yes, he'd bring me back little rocks. <laughs> little rocks? Little mountain rocks. That he would tell you these are mountain rocks. Yes, he'd say, here you go, Vivi, here's a mountain rock. That he got from the top of the mountain? I don't know, he never specified. <laughs> I say, it seems like... If I feel if I were presented with a mountain rock, mm. I'd want to know it came from the top of the mountain rather than the bottom of the mountain because I feel like the, the bottom mountain rock I could probably get myself. But it's all a part of the mountain. Yeah, but it's just, just on the ground. Well, there's the difference between you and me. I see everything. <laughs> I suppose so. Although, to be fair, I've never been poked in the forehead with a, a stick from outside. Um, one of your more interesting books is Flush, a biography. It is a part fiction, part biography of the Cocker Spaniel, owned by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Yeah, and the book is written from the dog's point of view. <laughs> I was really losing it. <laughs> uh, it pains me to admit it, but I was, I was at the end of my rope. It's true. You know, that, that was one of my later novels. 
Was that a sort of thing you came out of a fugue state? You're like, what? I've written a book. I from had the point a point of view yes. of a dog. Well, I had a. I remember the inspiration for it was I. I had a dream that I was a dog, and life was so much easier. And then and then I thought to myself, oh, a doggy. I'm going to write everything as if and I, w I would walk around for days. You can ask Lynette this. I would walk around for days as if I were a dog. I would, I would walk into the kitchen and pant, and I'd ask for treats, you know, <laughs> to, get, to do my research. I would, I pissed in the backyard. <laughs> Do you know who later uh, 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 appropriated this style was uh, the first lady of America, Barbara Bush. She wrote a book uh, about the White House dog from the point of view of the dog. I don't believe Blasphemy! You, yes, I don't believe you were ever given credit for that. No! Oh, that terrible woman! Oh my God! How dare she? She didn't give me any credit. Not at all. Well, that's upsetting. I would like to have a word with her. Well, she's still alive, and I can take you right to her after we <laughs> after we're, we're finished here this evening. I would love to have a word with her. Well, was her story better? Oh, I don't think so. What was, was the dog's name? Uh, was it Barney? Why do I know that? <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel as if it might be Barney. I I what was it? Millie? That also sounds familiar. Was there a presidential dog called Barney? I wish I knew more about presidential dogs. <laughs> but one thing I thought I knew may turn out to be wrong. Um, in any event, <laughs> that dog is also eligible <laughs> to be a guest on this program <laughs> as, as a published author. <laughs> it, was, it was an as told to, you understand? I don't understand. You're having the dog. The dog was the writer. Well, that, that was the conceit of the book, was that uh, it was, uh, you know. That was the conceit of my book. No, I know, I know. Mrs. Wolf, I'm 100% on your side. 100%. I, I believe that a, a grave injustice has been done to you, and I, I'm happy to transport you. Once, once we're done here, I'm happy to transport you to wherever this old woman is and beat the piss out of her. <laughs> oh, you know what? You should grab a stick from outside. <gasps> I will. Oh, vengeance, justice is at last. Can we touch very briefly on your anti-Semitism? <laughs> um, it's, it's a bit confusing because there, there are certain things you said that, that sound not so wonderful by today's standards or by yesterday's standards. Um, um, but then you, you were very close with your husband and you were, uh, you were, an, you were against fascism. Yes, um, uh, bad, bad. And uh, you did say at one point, uh, um, uh, I do not like the Jewish voice, I do not like the Jewish laugh. <laughs> now that sounds like a hateful Dr. Seuss couplet. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Is that, what, is that what it sounded like oh, to you? Oh, oh, That's oh. the Jewish voice, or is that your own? Are you, you're attempting to laugh. You're attempting to laugh. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, I, uh, look, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't, I, I thought everyone at the time was saying things like that. It no, wasn't just me. And, no doubt. And We're certainly, you know, these comments have been taken out of context. <laughs> Jewish people are like every people. They're fun. 
that did it. <laughs> Look, I don't feel those things anymore. I, I, because I. Yes, and later, later, later in life, uh, as you were older, you you recanted a lot of those things. And yes. You, and you you talked of your own snobbery that you couldn't oh, believe that you were so callous when you when you were younger. Yes. Yes, I looked down on everyone on absolutely everyone. But see, it's part of how I was raised, you know? My mother was such a beauty. She didn't have to, to work to please anyone but herself or my father, you know? So I, I was born with that sort of snobbery intact in my point of view and the way I saw the world. So you're okay with Jews now? Mm. <laughs> I'm okay with them. Moving on. Um, <laughs> your best known non-fiction works, uh, Room of One's Own, Three Guineas, um, mm -hmm. uh, they're chiefly about the, uh, the difficulties that uh, uh, women, uh, writers, intellectuals, uh, face because men uh, hold disproportionate legal and economic power um, and uh, uh, how difficult it is for women to uh, thrive um, in, in, in a society like that. Um, what, what do you make of uh, feminism today and where we're at in, in terms of male-female relations? Yeah, I'm astounded. I'm astounded by the leaps and bounds we've made, but we still haven't achieved total equality. I, I understand that there, there are bans still around this country of women getting abortion and having to seek parental permission to have an abortion and, and all that kind of stuff and, you know... It's good. <laughs> Cer well, certainly uh, things have, have gotten better than they yes, were yes, uh, back in our better. time. But uh, uh, just uh, there was recently a, a video uh, going around online that showed uh, a woman walking around the streets of Manhattan and all the, all the things that were I yelled that. at her. Yes. yes. Now, back in your day, uh, uh, you know, in, in London, was this a common occurrence? I mean, were, were men yelling things at young ladies? It wasn't. It wasn't as as blatant or explicit as the things that those gentlemen were yelling. It was sort of, I guess, what they saw as pleasantries, which I'm sure these gentlemen <laughs> see them as pleasantries too. But well, they're just trying to say hello. <laughs> they're, they're just trying to give compliments. Fuck you. <laughs> They are being rude and, and, and treating, treating us as if they have a right to say such things, as if they're entitled to make a comment on our appearance. In my day, it was, hello there. A very nice bustle. And <laughs> defense, you know, walking down the lane. <laughs> have you been to a party yet? You know, uh, or look, there's a trolley. Or uh, uh, now, <laughs> back then, that was certainly oh, a was sort of a come on. So offensive, yes. <laughs> look, there's a trolley. Have you ever heard anything? I mean, it, it's they, they wouldn't say that to a man, would they? Look, there's a trolley. No, they would say it to. They were gesturing to a trolley, but they would mean <laughs> the, the women. We all felt it. There's an inherent, and, uh, and, and this is something I fight against in my literature, and, and, and I hope it, we continue to fight against today. There's, a, there's an inherent uh, discord between what we all know is right as humans to treat each other equally and to love each other and, and hold hands with each other through this, this 
hellhole called life until we get to the end and then we could take the plunge in the icy dark water all together. <laughs> and we'll be freezing and miserable, but at least we'll have each other. We all sense that, I know we do, but, and yet people treat each other with such hatred, such intense disgust, and, and it's, it's simply unfair, and, and I know we all know that at our souls, I know we do. No one is talking about it, and this is part of what I try to get to in my novels, is let's talk about what's really going on. Let's talk about how we all hate our lives. Let's talk about how sad everything is. Let's, let's talk about it, and then we can be happy for a time until we die. <laughs> But I'm glad the discussion is, is, is at the forefront. I'm, I'm so, this social media. Yes, you're saying that correctly. <laughs> social media, it, it's be, it become this wonderful platform for the ongoing battle of feminism and, and the ongoing battle to become better humans. Until we can all join hands and jump into that icy water <laughs> for the mass global extinction. That's right. Certainly. Um, how do you feel about uh, being portrayed on film? Um, um, the actress, uh, Nicole Kidman, uh, won an Academy Award for playing you in a film called The Hours. I understand she had a prosthetic nose. <laughs> well, that is, uh, that is true. She had a, a, different, uh, a different nose from you, and um, so she, she felt it necessary to, uh, to sort of uh, make her nose look more like yours. I was a little insulted by that. But I was mostly insulted by her portrayal of me as being someone who's just so constantly dour and melancholy and, and doesn't, ever, doesn't ever, you know, she, she just would just look so sorrowful at things. And I, I feel that that's a little bit inaccurate. And you've seen me smile. I flirt. You're nothing but a flirty smiler. Um, do you feel that uh, uh, she misrepresented the amount of time you spent looking sadly out of windows? No, that's accurate. <laughs> um, we've just got time for some, uh, from some questions from the social networking platform Twitter. These are people that couldn't be here with us this evening, but, uh, but okay. sent in questions to ask you. Wonderful. Um, a fellow named Ben Burton wants to know, I've read that your father was a member of the golden age of mountaineering. Did he have any good mountaineering stories? Uh, one time, hello, Ben. One time. Oh, that's the first time that's happened. <laughs> none, none of the guests have ever addressed the people from Twitter. That's very nice of you. Well, may I call you Benjamin? Benjamin, Let's my assume father. He says yes. <laughs> My father, uh, of course, he, he mountaineered all over the place. And mountaineering, as you know, is very dangerous. And so he would come home and, of course, he would tell stories about, oh, there was this one time he was mountaineering <laughs> and he was doing his mountaineering. So and up to some old mountaineering. That's right. <laughs> and and one, of his, one of his mountaineering pals made a, gave him a goose. Gave him a goose on his tushy. <laughs> and he, he slid halfway down the face of a mountain. They all had a good laugh, but, but he was very upset. Seems, seems rather unsafe. Gave him a little goose. 
And it just startled him so much. Yes, he didn't see it coming. You know, they, he said that all the boys, all the mountaineering boys, they'd, they'd um, joke with each other and tease each other. But that was one that resulted in physical harm. My father had several lacerations and cuts all along the left side of his body. He just slid down like this. Just right down on his face. That hardly seems worth the goosing. Um, a young lady called Stevie Jackson... Hey-oh. <laughs> Should I? I didn't know if you wanted a little shout-out to Oh, Stevie. oh, oh. Hello, Stevie. <laughs> she asked, as author of A Room of One's Own, what do you think of our near total lack of privacy in the 21st oh, century? That, you know, it disgusts me about, about this current age. I, I believe that space and, and room around oneself is... is crucial, not only as a creative, as an artist, as a writer, but just as a person to get a sense of where you are in the world. If we are constantly butting up against each other, constantly, uh, we, we can't get around anywhere on this planet, it seems, without jostling into one another. How are we possibly to know our own identities? How are we possibly able to catch a breath to get a sense of, of this world around us and the, the bleak black curtain of nothing that awaits us at the end of it. She may have been talking more about like, you know, you didn't want that U2 album, but there it was. <laughs> oh. Well. Uh, you know, there's nothing I can do about it, but if I had my druthers, I'd put everyone in an isolation tank. <laughs> oh no, what's happened? What's happened? I'm having a status quo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a woman called Laura Nell. Uh, with reg <laughs> Hi, Laura. Okay. With regard to... Now, this, is, this one, this, is, this young woman is trying to maximise the characters allowed in Twitter. WRT docs incompetence in Mrs. D, colon. Errors, non-understanding of PTSD, general crit of psychiatry, or specific to one bad doc. Let me translate. With regard to the doctor's incompetence in Mrs. Dalloway, is it the errors, non-understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder, a general criticism of psychiatry, or specific to one bad doctor? Now, you've known your share of bad doctors, I would imagine. Yes. So was this doctor who was very callous about uh, post-traumatic uh, shell shock, as uh, we used to call it. Yes. Um, it, it does that, was that based on a specific person that you knew? Well, it was based on the doctor that would poke me with a stick the and stick go, tee-hee, tee-hee. Yes, of so course. I, uh, he was, uh, but he, you know, he was a microcosm of, of, the, uh, of the medical community at large at that time. Uh, people just didn't know how to handle such, uh, quote-unquote, diseases... I call them just the way things are. <laughs> However, they, they didn't take the time either to, to try to learn and understand it. You know, it was, it, was, it was one of those things of, well, there's nothing physically wrong with this person. Therefore, they, they must be all well. Uh, you know, tut tut, there we go. Off, off, off you go into the world. And he, you know, uh, several men would come back from the First World War and they would be just scarred emotionally and, and psychologically by the horror that they saw on the battlefield. 
And then they would come home and people would say, oh, well, you got a little spot on your leg. Well, sew that up. Off you go. And no one would talk to them about what happened. I think it was indicative of the medical community at large at that time. But yes, I'm specifically talking about Tihi Tihi. Certainly. <laughs> um, Igor, Igor, Igor Santos. Miss Wolf. Oh. How much do you enjoy the fact that British band Virginia Woolf's drummer is the son of Led Zeppelin's drummer? <laughs> now, just so you know, the band name Virginia Woolf is spelled with just the one O, W-O-L-F, which is the least clever band spelling since Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so apparently, John I Bonham's son... I don't understand son, any of this. Well, we'll move on. I don't know why he's... I don't know why he's not asking. Don't you enjoy the fact that there's a band named after you? He thinks for some reason what you'll enjoy is that the drummer for this band is the son of Led Zeppelin's drummer. <laughs> Igor, back to robbing graves for you. I'm, I apologize, Igor. <laughs> Sam Cohn asks, what happened? <laughs> is that you? You're here? Well, Sam, Good Sam evening, welcome. This is, this is rare that someone recognizes their name and expresses such delight. And this is your first time coming to the show. Well, you're, you're maximizing your experience, aren't you? <laughs> Sa I say, Sam, would you like to read your question directly to... Why don't you come right here? Come right here. Certainly. This never happens. There we go, right there. I'm so, I'm so delighted this is the question that's going to be asked. There we go. Uh, from Samco. Uh, you attempted suicide by jumping out of a window. <laughs> what were what you thought were going to be your last, your final thoughts? Thank you, Sam. That'll do. <laughs> wow. Oh, oh, and he's Jewish. I said I didn't mean any of that. We, we could tell by your laugh. I'm I said, now, your question to me is, when I attempted suicide, I did it. I attempted it. She jumped out a window. What were my final thoughts, or what did I think my final thoughts would be? Well, surely, if I may, Sam, um, surely, as this was happening, something, some thought went through your head. Yes. Which would have been, had you been successful, your final thoughts on oh. Earth. Oh, I'm glad that it, that it wasn't, because my, my thought was, this was when I was write, writing Flush, and uh, my final thought was, I'm a doggy! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Virginia Woolf. My thanks to Virginia Woolf for her time, and special thanks to Miss Mary Holland for no particular reason. This podcast is produced by Messrs. Ben Zelovansky and Paul F. Tompkins, with special material written by Mr. Zelovansky. The producers wish to thank 
Cody Fisher, Marlene Maginot, Jim Yatto, Mike Still, Susan Hale, and everyone at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theatre Los Angeles, and Tia Stark and Joel Arquios of 826LA. Our theme was composed and performed by Mr. Eben Schletter, Esquire. Our program is recorded live and monthly at the UCB Theatre Los Angeles. If you'd like to attend a future recording, tickets may be acquired at ucbtheatre.com. The theatre donates all proceeds to A26LA. For updates on future performances, please like the Dead Authors page on Facebook. For additional updates, or to ask questions of our guests from the safety of your very own thumbs, follow us on Twitter, at DeadAuthorPod. The original Dead Authors reading series was created by Mr. John Korn. Until next time, this is H.G. Wells saying, the show is over. <laughs> <laughs>